You can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who is your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? Yeah, I mean, dig into the real history of this country and the fact that it was built on blood. You can't be neutral on a moving train, 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 train. Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics. You can find all the back episodes of You Can't Be Neutral at youcan'tbeneutral.com. You'll also find some links there to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. You can also follow on Twitter at YCBNeutral. It is May 15, 2021, as I record this episode, which is the 73rd anniversary of the Nakba. This piece is from DecolonizePalestine.com, from the section Palestine 101, Introduction to Palestine, the Mandate, and the Nakba. This is part two of our introduction articles. We highly recommend reading them in order. As we learned in the previous article, the fall of the Ottoman Empire, the birth of the Zionist movement, and the declaration of Palestine as a British mandate all contributed to birthing the Palestinian question. Even before Palestine was officially declared a mandate in 1922, British policies and preferential treatment of the Zionist colonists helped create a volatile political climate. While Zionist settlement in Palestine predates the mandate years, the newly found British sponsorship, whether tacit or explicit, provided the perfect cover for the Zionist movement to ramp up its colonization efforts. For all intents and purposes, the Jewish Yishuv became a proto-state within an existing nation, aiming to establish an exclusive Jewish ethnocracy. The Yishuv had to contend with the fact that the entirety of the land was inhabited by the native population. This is where the settler, quote, logic of elimination came into play. Coined by scholar Patrick Wolfe, This means that the settlers needed to develop not only moral justifications for the removal of the natives, but also the practical means to ensure its success. This could take the form of ethnic cleansing, genocide, or other gruesome tools of ethnocide. And this is the common practice, the common uh, um, pattern of all settler colonial exploits, including the United States. If you're at all familiar with Zionist talking points, you can see this logic of elimination in motion. Quote, a land without a people for a people without a land. There is no such thing as a Palestinian. Israel made the desert bloom, and many other talking points illustrate this perfectly. The settlers would never admit that the Palestinians constituted a people, but rather viewed them as disconnected communities at best 
and wandering, rootless vagabonds at worst. Such arguments would form the basis for legitimizing the dispossession of the natives. This is hardly unique to Zionist settler colonialism. For example, you can immediately see how denying the existence of Palestinians resembles the terra nullis argument used by colonists all over the world. Historically, Palestine has always been a place of refuge for many populations fleeing war and famine. It is home to Palestinians of diverse origins, such as Armenia, Bosnian, and even Indian Palestinians. They all came to Palestine for different reasons, and to this day form an integral part of its society. The issue was never with the idea of Zionists moving to Palestine, but rather that from the onset, the Zionist movement was not interested in coexistence. There is ample evidence recorded by the Zionist pioneers themselves that the native Palestinian population was welcoming of the first Zionist settlers. They worked side by side, and the Palestinians even taught them how to work the land, despite Zionists seeing the Palestinians as inferior and uncivilized. Only after it became clear that these settlers did not come to live in Palestine as equals, but to become its landlords, as the Jewish National Fund chairman Menachem Yusishkin said, did Zionism come to be perceived as a threat. For example, Zionist leadership went out of its way to sanction settlers employing or working with Palestinians, calling Palestinian labor an illness and forming a segregated trade union that banned non-Jewish members. Consequently, as with every colonial situation, there was resistance by the native population. In this context, some of this resistance was aimed at the British and some at the Zionist settlers themselves. A prominent example of this is the 1936 revolt. As colonial overlords, the British were exceptional record keepers. Backed by empirical data, they compiled report after report in an attempt to monitor the tensions erupting all over Palestine. These reports showed that the distrust between the Palestinian and Zionist populations intensified after the British military administration of Palestine and the issuance of the Balfour Declaration. The Haycraft Report, for example, concluded that despite Zionist accusations, the actions of the Palestinians were not at all motivated by anti-Semitism, but rather by the British military administration favoring the Zionist settlers to the detriment of the Palestinians. The Shaw Report stated that there had been no such tension for nearly a century prior. By the end of the mandate, in spite of the Zionist efforts to purchase as much land as possible and maximize the number of European Zionist settlers, they barely controlled 5-6% to 6 of the land in the mandatory Palestine and constituted only a third of the population. This population had only just arrived and did not amount to a clear majority in any region of Palestine. This population distribution would make establishing an exclusivist Zionist state in Palestine impossible. It is under these circumstances that calls for partitioning Palestine into an Arab-Palestinian and Zionist Jewish states started to gain traction 
in some circles. The Partition of Palestine When partition is brought up, it is not surprising that most tend to think of the 1947 United Nations General Assembly Resolution. This resolution recommended the partition of Palestine into an Arab-Palestinian state and a Zionist Jewish state at the end of the British Mandate. This was seen by some as a solution to the escalating tensions and violence during the Mandate years. However, this was not the first partition scheme to be presented. In 1919, for example, the World Zionist Organization put forward a partition plan which included all the territory which would become mandatory Palestine, as well as parts of Lebanon, Syria, and Transjordan. At the time, the Jewish population of this proposed state would not have even reached 2 to 3% of the total population. Naturally, such a colonial proposal would be unjust regardless of the population disparity, but it is an indication of the entitlement of the Zionist movement in wanting to establish an ethnic state in an area they had no claim to and where they were so utterly outnumbered. The bulk of the Zionist population arrived in Palestine during the 4th and 5th Zionist immigration waves. Aliot, between 1924 and 1939. That means that the majority of those demanding partition of the land had barely been living there for 20 years at most. To make matters worse, the UN partition plan allotted approximately 56% of the land of mandatory Palestine to the Zionist state, including most of the fertile coastal region. The Palestinians, of course, rejected this. They were being asked to give away most of their land to a minority of recently arrived settlers. The rejection of this ridiculous premise is still cited today as the Palestinians being intransigent and refusing peace. This is often negatively contrasted with the claim that the Yishuv agreed to the 1947 partition plan, which is portrayed as showing of goodwill and readiness to coexist with their Palestinian neighbors. While this may seem true on the surface, a cursory glance at internal Yishuv meetings paints an entirely different picture. Partition as a concept was entirely rejected by the Yishuv, and any acceptance in public was tactical in order for the newly created Jewish state to gather its strength before expanding. While addressing the Zionist executive, Ben-Gurion, leader of the Yishuv and Israel's first prime minister, re-emphasized that any acceptance of partition would be temporary. Quote, After the formation of a large army in the wake of the establishment of the state, we will abolish partition and expand to the whole of Palestine. This was not a one-time occurrence and neither was it only espoused by Ben-Gurion. Internal debates and letters illustrate this time and time again. Even in letters to his family, Ben-Gurion wrote the quote, A Jewish state is not the end, but the beginning, detailing that settling the rest of Palestine depended on creating an elite army. As a matter of fact, he was quite explicit. Quote, I don't regard a state in part of Palestine as the final aim of Zionism, but as a mean toward that aim. Chaim Weitzman, prominent Zionist leader and first president of Israel, expected that, quote, 
partition might only be a temporary arrangement for the next 20 to 25 years. So even ignoring the moral question of requiring the natives to formally greenlight their own colonization, had the Palestinians agreed to partition, they most likely still would not have had an independent state today. Despite what was announced in public, internal Zionist discussions make it abundantly clear that this would have never been allowed. However, the problems with the United Nations partition plan go even deeper than this. To be clear, the resolution did not partition Palestine. It was in fact a partition plan, which was to be seen as a recommendation, and that the issue should be transferred to the Security Council. The resolution does not obligate the people of Palestine to accept it, especially considering the non-binding nature of UNGA resolutions. For its part, the Security Council attempted to find a resolution based on the UNGA recommendation, but could not arrive at a consensus. Many concluded that the plan could not be enforced. Israel was unilaterally declared a state by Zionist leadership, while the Security Council was still trying to arrive at a conclusion. The plan was never implemented. However, there is an argument that although the plan never came to fruition, the UNGA recommendation to partition Palestine to establish a Jewish state conferred the legal authority to create such a state. As a matter of fact, this can be seen in the Declaration of the Establishment of the State of Israel. This argument falls flat on its face when we take into account that the United Nations, both its General Assembly as well as its Security Council, do not have the jurisdiction to impose political solutions, especially without the consent of those it affects. There is nothing in the UN Charter that confers such authority to the United Nations. Indeed, this was brought up during the discussions on the matter. Furthermore, not only would this be outside the scope of the United Nations' power, it would, as a matter of fact, run counter to its mandate. This issue was raised by the United Nations Special Committee on Palestine itself. Quote, With regard to the principle of self-determination, although international recognition was extended to this principle at the end of the First World War, and it was adhered to with regard to the other Arab territories at the time of the creation of the A mandates, it was not applied to Palestine obviously because of the intention to make possible the creation of the Jewish national home there. Actually, it may well be said that the Jewish national home and the sui generis mandate for Palestine run counter to that principle. This is a direct admission that the creation of a Zionist national home in Palestine runs counter to the principle of self-determination for Palestinians already living there. The United Nations needed to twist itself into a knot and make an exception to their own charter to recommend the partition of Palestine. However, even if it had been within their power to do so, and had it not ran counter to their charter, the UN still had no right to force the Palestinians to tear their homeland in half. The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine the demographic realities in Palestine had always troubled the Zionist movement, despite their consistent sloganeering of, quote, a land without a people for a people without a land, they were acutely aware of the reality on the ground. 
Even from its earliest days, Zionist leaders spoke about removing the native population to make room for the colonists who would utilize the land in a much more, quote, civilized and advanced ways. Towards the end of the mandate, it would become clear that there would be no voluntary exodus of the native Palestinians. It is within this context that Plan D, Toknit Dalit, was developed by the Haganah High Command. Although it was adopted in May 1948, the origins of this plan go back a few years earlier. Yigayel Yadin reportedly started working on it in 1944. This plan entailed the expansion of the borders of the Zionist state, well beyond partition, and any Palestinian village within these borders that resisted would be destroyed and have its inhabitants expelled. This included cities that were supposed to be part of the Arab-Palestinian state after partition, such as Nazareth, Acre, and Lida. Ben Zohar, the biographer of Ben-Gurion, wrote the quote, In internal discussions and instructions to his men, the old man demonstrated a clear position. It would be better that as few a number as possible of Arabs would remain in the territory of the Jewish state. Although it could be argued that Plan D did not outline the exact villages and cities to be ethnically cleansed in an explicit way, it was clear that the various Yishuv forces were operating with its instructions in mind. It is important to stress that the ethnic cleansing of Palestine began before the 1948 war, and even before a single Arab soldier set foot in Palestine. This is important to understand because many still erroneously argue that the Nakba, Arabic for catastrophe, was a byproduct of the Arab war on the fledgling Israeli state. Approximately 300,000 Palestinians had been expelled through ethnic cleansing campaigns before the onset of the war or the end of the mandate. These campaigns were accompanied by massacres and war crimes, even against villages that were neutral and had non-aggression pacts with the Zionist Yishuv. The ethnic cleansing of the village of Der Yasin demonstrates this perfectly. For many reasons, the Arab states, mainly Transjordan, Egypt, Syria, and Lebanon, were not interested in a war. However, after the monstrous ethnic cleansing campaigns against the Palestinians, they finally reluctantly intervened. However, an aspect that is often ignored is the inter-Arab rivalries and disunity that were among the chief causes for the intervention in 1948. Barely coming out from under colonialism themselves, their actions during the war showed that they never really joined the war with eliminationist intent, as the popular narrative goes. The Jordanians were more interested in acquiring the West Bank as a stepping stone to their real ambition, which was greater Syria. As a matter of fact, there is ample evidence of collusion between the Israelis and Jordanians during the 1948 war, with deals under the table pretty much gifting parts of the West Bank to Transjordan in return for not interfering in other areas. The Egyptians joined in an attempt to counter the Hashemite power play that could change the balance of power in the region. 
For these reasons, the Arab armies generally intervened in the territories of the mandate destined to be part of the Palestinian Arab state, according to the 1947 partition plan, and with very few exceptions, stayed away from the area designated to be part of the Zionist Jewish state. Yes, support for Palestine and Palestinians played a large role in the legitimization of such interventions, but they were never the real reason behind them. As per usual when it comes to international relations, interests are always at the center of any maneuver, regardless of the espoused noble and altruistic motivations. Despite their propaganda and rhetoric, the Arab states sought different secret opportunities to avoid and end the war with Israel. Some offers went as far as to agree to absorb all Palestinian refugees. These were all rejected by Israel with the goal of maximizing its land grabs. For example, when it became clear that Israel would ignore all negotiations regarding partition and unilaterally declare its independence, there were enormous efforts behind the scenes aimed at avoiding war, not to mention ending it early when it did eventually break out. These efforts were heavily sponsored by the United States, who asked in March 1948 that all military activities be ceased, and asked the Yishuv to postpone any declaration of statehood and to give time for negotiations. Outside of Abdullah of Transjordan, the Arab states accepted this initiative by the United States. However, it was rejected by Ben-Gurion, who knew that any peaceful implementation of the partition plan meant that the refugees he had expelled earlier would have a chance to return, not to mention that war would offer him a chance to conquer the lands he coveted outside the partition plan. This followed a long series of Zionist rejection of overtures by the native Palestinians. In 1928, for example, the Palestinian leadership voted to allow Zionist settlers equal representation in the future bodies of the state, despite them being a minority who had barely just arrived. This was faced with Zionist rejection. Even after this, in 1947, the Palestinians suggested the formation of a unitary state for all those living between the river and the sea to replace the mandate to no avail. There were many attempts at coexistence, but this simply would not have benefited the Zionist leadership, who never intended to come to Palestine to live as equals. By the end of the war, 800,000 Palestinians would be ethnically cleansed from approximately 530 villages and communities. Israel would be established on the rubble of these villages, and their settlers would come to call the emptied abodes that once housed Palestinian families home. To this day, these 800,000 and their descendants are still scattered all over the world in refugee camps and Israel refuses their right to return home. The ethnic cleansing operations continued well into the 1950s, years after the end of the war. The post-war armistice line would come to be known as the Green Line, and it marks the de facto borders of the Israeli state, though official borders have never been declared. The areas that Israel did not conquer, for example the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, would come to be ruled by Jordan and Egypt, respectively. It is estimated that around 80% of the Palestinian population within the Green Line were expelled. 
The remaining 20% would live under martial law for decades to come and have their communities turned into segregated, heavily controlled enclaves surrounded by barbed wire. These early years would prove formative to the discriminatory regime of laws that govern Israel to this very day. And here is just the beginning of Part 3 of Palestine 101 from DecolonizePalestine.com. In mid-May 1948, the State of Israel was officially established on the ruins of Palestine, having ethnically cleansed approximately 80% of the Palestinians in its newly acquired territory. The following years would consolidate Zionist control of the land and pave the way for discriminatory ethnocratic laws and policies that would institutionalize the theft of everything Palestinian. The ethnic cleansing of Palestine would not stop after the war. Palestinians in the Nakab, as well as those close to the ceasefire lines, would continue to face mass expulsions into the 1950s. In the same period, Israel issued the infamous absentee property law, This law was instrumental in systematically seizing the property of all of the refugees it had created, including their homes, farms, land, and even the contents of their bank accounts. Through this law, the state took control of everything remaining behind when the refugees fled, and if not, quote, contested or claimed, they would then become the property of the state, free to be utilized in any way it saw fit. Given the fact that any refugee attempting to return was shot, you can see how this law served merely as a fig leaf to legitimize what can only be described as naked theft. This is a small portion of the history of Palestine and the creation of Israel on Palestinian land and the ongoing occupation of Palestine by Israel. The current state of Israel and Palestine is a state of apartheid, very much similar to the apartheid in South Africa, in which the legal system is applied differently to individuals, depending on whether they are Jewish or Arab, um, it is a, a state of persecution, consistent, regular, ongoing persecution of Palestinians inside what is uh, described or determined to be Israel proper and within the occupied territories that Israel has full military and police control and legal control over, not legal in the sense that it is accepted by the world community. Israel is in violation of dozens of United Nations uh, resolutions calling for them to not be acting in the way that they are, and they ignore those completely with the um, acquiescence and the full support of the United States and the full support uh, economically and militarily, where we spend billions of dollars every year supporting the police and military of Israel and allowing them to perpetrate 
what is a genocide against the Arab-Palestinian people in the land that they occupy. That's going to wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. Once again, if you want to check out back episodes, just go to youcan'tbeneutral.com. You can follow on Twitter at YCBneutral. And you can listen to this and all my podcasts playing 24-7 at movingtrainradio.com. This is Low Key with the track Long Live Palestine 3 from Soundtrack to the Revolution 2. Thanks for listening. As you prepare your breakfast, think of others. Do not forget to feed the pigeons. As you wage your wars, think of others. Do not forget those who fight for peace. As you pay your water bill, think of others, those who are nursed by clouds. As you return home, to your home, think of others. Do not forget the people of the camps. As you sleep and count the stars, think of others, those who have nowhere to sleep. As you liberate yourself with metaphors, think of others, those who have lost the right to speak. As you think of others far away, Think of yourself and say, if only I were a candle in the night. This is for Palestine of course, the capital Jerusalem Unarmed people marching to the wall and they're shooting them Suppression is a question, resistance is the answer Long live Palestine, long live Gaza Palestine of Quds, the capital Jerusalem Unarmed people marching to the wall and they're shooting them Suppression is a question, resistance is the answer Long live Palestine, long live Gaza All you see is war Every time you turn your head and Bloodshed on the floor Mother cries, who cries for her this time it's Truth between these walls See the lies between the lines They hide where the bullets coming from From the tyrants dressed in our disguise I'm gonna ride until the end Even if I got a pushback for all my friends Cause you know that I'm a fighter Let me see a lighter And we not gonna stop the Palestine is free But still you know that I'm a ride until the end even if I got a pushback for all my friends Cause you know that I'm a fighter Let me see a lighter And we're not gonna stop the Palestine is free Taught to not love, taught to be blind Taught to not care, tell me what's real Borderlines, military despair How to exist if there's no rights to be human in fear And if you take away your home, where's the house supposed to live? Taught to not love, taught to be blind Taught to not care, tell me what's real Borderlines, military despair How to exist if there's no rights to be human in fear Take away your home, where's the heart supposed to live? Buturea could resist without a wheelchair Ten year challenge, tell Rick if we are still here And tell that killer Netanyahu he should feel fear The old live through us and guarantee the children will care Criminal, not invincible and you know it Samadun, Samadun still sitting in their stoic May not feel us with you when you listen to our poems You inspire humanity, your resistance is heroic Regardless of talk, here's time we answer the call Through your strength of spirit you provide example for all How to live, how to love when attacked from the clouds above 
Loud and clear, the songs you sung can't be drowned by the sound of guns. Won't just watch a tragic times do a satellite dish. The least that we can give you is an anthem like this. They panic, try to analyze and sanitize this. But we love you more than ever still. Palestine lives. oppression of the Palestinians, encircling of the people of Gaza, the killing of civilians, the burning of homes, the daily oppression, the theft of land, the apartheid system in the West Bank where there are two road systems, and I've been and I'm sure you have, and you see the, the, the Israeli road, you see like a, a spanking new highway with just the settler cars going backwards and forwards, then you see the old Palestinian roads, and it's clearly it's it's people living under two sets of laws, an apartheid system. So all this is being uncovered, and the boycotts and divestment and sanctions campaign, which I support and I'm sure many other people do, as a peaceful protest against the Israeli oppression. Support groups have got to keep proclaiming the rights of the Palestinians are the right to return, the right to um, the right to their homeland, really. And, um, and the theft of land is, Israel is breaking international law, it is breaking the Geneva Convention. 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 Convention.